0: About a year ago, uh, Greg Lindsay, my colleague and predecessor, who's here uh, today, he and I uh, went to London and we had lunch with a chap named James Bartholomew. And it was shortly after uh, British public opinion polling showed that large segments of British millennials, so these are young folks born between roughly 1980 and 1996, might be 1982 and 1998, but people in their 20s and early to mid 30s. And the polling showed that large pluralities of these folks did not know much about communism or socialism. And as a result, James decided to create an initiative that would become the museum dedicated to victims of communist terror, just to remind young people of the evil things that communists all around the world have inflicted on humanity. Um, we all too often know and hear about museums dedicated to victims of fascism and Nazism, quite rightly. But only in Budapest, in Hungary, is there a museum dedicated to victims of communist terror. And you may see on your uh, desks there some cards. Uh, one of my favourite is this is one of his business cards 70% of young people have never heard of Mao Tong. Think about that. 70%. And yet, he was the leader of a communist regime in China that killed anywhere from 40 to 70 million people. Another card communism kills, deaths in World War I, 15 to 16 million, deaths in World War II, 40 to 80 million, deaths under communism, 80 to 100 million. So, these trends among British, British millennials, you know, not knowing enough about socialism. They were reflected in all the available public polling evidence in the United States as well about millennials. Uh, some even said, uh, I think a majority thought that George W. Bush killed more people than Joseph Stalin. So we were quite disturbed, Greg and I were quite disturbed about these polls and we thought let's, let's commission YouGov to do similar polling in this country. And many of you are probably familiar with our research. Um, among other things, we found that 58% of millennials Australian millennials have a favourable view of socialism. Only 18% have an unfavourable view, think about that. 59% believe that capitalism has failed. 62% believe that Australian workers are worse off today than they were 40 years ago. Again, it goes against all the evidence-based analytical data you can produce. And about the same amount of people, it's about 60% of millennials believe the federal government spends less on health and education today than it did uh, in the Howard years. Uh, Again, the evidence contradicts that. So I could go on about what all this means, but I'll leave the broader issues to our guest speaker. Uh, James Bartholomew is a prolific writer in Britain. Uh, He's written columns and articles over many years for the UK Daily Telegraph, uh, the UK Financial Times, the Far Eastern Economic Review uh, in Tokyo, and I think Hong Kong. Um, He's also the author of a very important book, uh, The Welfare of Nations. Copies are being sold at the back, and I'd encourage you all to seriously consider buying copies of it. It was very well received at the time. Writing in the UK Spectator a few years ago, James wrote one of the most popular articles in Spectator history. Got the most hits of the last 20 years on the web. The headline, the awful rise of virtue signalling. That's right, James Bartholomew coined that term several years ago. The awful rise of virtue signalling, and the subheading was, wanna be virtuous. Saying the right things violently on Twitter is much easier than real kindness. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome James Bartholomew.
1: Thank you. Well, uh, thank you to, the, um, uh, to Tom and to the CAS for inviting me here. Uh, I have to say, though, that I was invited under false pretenses. Uh, Tom said to me, uh, why don't you come away? When it will be your autumn. It will be getting dark and wet. And, <laughs> uh, and, and you can come to sunny Sydney.
2: <laughs>
1: and nevertheless, I am delighted to, uh, to be here. I have a feel a great affinity with Australia, partly because my grandmother was born here, and it was an Australian, and my godmother was an Australian. And in fact, in 1981, I came here on a work trip from uh, Hong Kong, where I worked for the Far East no- Economic Review, and, uh, and stayed with my, my godmother in, uh, in Darling Point. She had a fabulous unit overlooking the harbor. And um, it was the year after that, in 1982, that I took a trip on the Trans-Siberian railway, uh, starting in Peking, as I still call it. Uh, and going all the way uh, to London in the end uh, by train, um, passing through the Soviet Union, uh, Ukraine, uh, Romania, uh, Yugoslavia as it then was, and then finally paradise in Venice and Milan. Um, the contrast was just amazing. Anyway, when I that trip solidified for me things I already thought and made made them sharper and stronger. Um, And just to give you two small experiences I had, I stopped off in Irkutsk and um, walked around the town. And after several, because it takes a long time, this train, um, several days without any fresh fruit on on the train, I was really desperate, bizarre it may sound, for fresh fruit. So I, I walked around Irkutsk, which is a reasonable sized town, looking for fresh fruit going anywhere I could see where there might be shops to try and buy fresh fruit. Eventually, after a long search, I found some fruit. It was two small, hard, old lemons. (laughs) That was it. That was the fresh fruit available in Irkutsk in 1982. The other experience I had was to... Uh, I was walking around, and uh, and I started chatting to somebody. Somebody actually spoke a little English. <coughs> and although we had a stilted conversation, we talked for a while. And um, he said... Um, I, well, I said to him, you know, because we got getting along really well, and I said, would you like to come and have supper at my hotel? And, of course, the, the foreigners had a, a, you know the spec- specific hotels you had to go to, the in-tourist hotels. And uh, so he came up. He agreed to come and have supper with me. We had... Uh, uh, we arrived, sat down. Tables like this, a so white tablecloth, waitresses. You know, it was all very nice. And um, we were just looking at a uh, menu to decide what to eat. And then the waitress came up to our table and spoke to the man in Russian. And he, th- after she spoke to him, he, he stood up. And I said, what, "What's going on? Where? where what what's are you going?" And he said, uh, "There are two men who want to speak to me." Oh. Uh, I never saw him again. That was the last I heard of him. I I mean, I still, I suppose I remember that story because I still feel I was stupid and naive to have taken that man to that hotel. I now realize that, of course, the KGB were monitoring everything that happened in that hotel. Um, They would be bugging rooms. They would be seeing who came in and out. Many of the staff would actually be KGB staff. Anyway, that, that experience of going through Russia and having various other experiences that really brought things home. I came to the conclusion, which was not a novel one, that the Soviet Union and communism was an economic disaster and a political and humanitarian disaster. I mean, there are some places where you think, okay, politically it's nasty, but at least the economy is growing. But this had nothing going for it. This was a disaster in every way. Lots of this stuff is pretty grim stuff. I mean, I'm dedicating myself to learning more about awful events. But uh, human spirit is a wonderful thing, and sometimes you see uh, humor comes through. There are uh, plenty of jokes in the, the, the uh, I mean, Estonia, I went recently, and they, they have uh, some books of jokes about communism. One of them was um, uh, Stalin. Stalin wanted to uh, establish what, sort of what the mood of the people was, how they felt about him. You know? So he, he went out incognito. And went to a cinema, and in the cinema they were they were they were showing a film. But then there was a newsreel, and Stalin himself appeared on the screen. Everybody stood up and started clapping. And Stalin thought, "This is great. This is marvellous. They love me." And he, he he modestly stayed sitting down because you know he didn't want to boast or anything. You know he just uh, <laughs> didn't want to clap himself, um, and that was fine. And then a neighbour who was clapping away said. Um, most of us feel the same way you do, but it's safer to stand.
2: <laughs>
1: so, uh, flash forward from the past to 2015, and uh, I went to visit the, the museum that, um, that Tom mentioned, the, uh, the House of Terror in Budapest, and at that time, Jeremy Corbyn, So 2015, Jeremy Corbyn was selected, or elected, as leader of the Labour Party. He's uh, undoubtedly a Marxist, and his sidekick is probably a Marxist-Leninist, which which means you're extra nasty. (laughs) Um, And um, uh, meanwhile, in America, Bernie Sanders was uh, really a strong competitor with Hillary Clinton for the Democrat nomination. And um, he boasted about socialism, and that was his ideal. I don't think he had a very clear idea what socialism was, but he certainly called himself like a uh, socialist. And I came out of the House of Terror, which is a very well-made museum. And I've been to much bigger, more expensive ones, which are not so well-made as that one is. And, um, and uh, it was a pretty overwhelming experience. My, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, had to be helped out. I, I didn't actually notice she wasn't well, so I, it wasn't me who helped her out, but somebody helped her out. <laughs> because it was such an over, you know, you know the, the, bottom, the bottom rooms are places where people were actually tortured and killed. Um, so it is pretty gruesome. And um, uh, I came out of that thinking, my children don't know about any of this. I mean, I was learning things I didn't know in that museum, but my children have, haven't, don't even begin to know this. Their friends do not know anything about this. We ought to have a museum about what the communists really did in London. I don't want my country to go down the same route. And uh, while you're about it, I maybe mean, why not in Sydney too? Uh, you know, th- th- this we're now a global village. You know, w- everybody needs to be reminded. Everybody is forgetting. Um, but. Um, and as uh, as t- as Thomas said, the stats are are frightening. You know, the um, in USA, Democrats more have a favorable view of socialism than of capitalism. And he said, 70% of young in Britain have never heard of Mao Zedong. And um, making a museum. I mean, I'm I'm obviously trying to correct and change some of this. That's that's the, that is the ambition. Um, but building an actual physical museum, ai have come to realize, is a huge project. Uh, the, the, there's an organization in Washington called Victims of Communism. They've got a budget of over a hundred million pounds to try and build a museum. It's not an easy thing, especially to make a big one. And uh, politically, you've got dangers because you know, governments are not going to subsidize that. They get nervous. It's political. You know, they're scared of it. It's not an easy cause to, for governments to support. In the mean, uh, I still nothing nevertheless hope that in due course we can build up to a full physical museum and have exhibitions and events in the meantime. So we're doing various events that are cheaper in the meantime, various projects in the meantime. And I think the most urgent project, which I have been doing, is to interview, to video interview people who actually experienced it. because one of the most powerful things in the Budapest Museum is you go around and you see an ordinary person saying, Uh, I was sent to a gulag. Um, This is—we had to work so many hours a day. Our food was this amount. It was bitterly cold. We had only these clothes—that I'm, uh, you know, only very thin clothes. Several of my friends got beaten if they disobeyed the guards, and um, and uh, several of my friends died of disease and they weren't treated. You know, when you see one person saying that and another person and another person, the skepticism, which I think is a natural and right part of human nature, to go in and say, "Oh, they're telling me this. They're telling me that." But to see people who actually experienced it, and you believe it because they're just ordinary people—they're not stars or anything like that—that that is the convincer. So I'm going around interviewing people who actually experienced it. I'm also interviewing experts as well, um, and you know, there's people like a, a, a woman in Moscow who was born in a gulag and whose twin brother died in the gulag, and her. Her natural father died in the gulag. I mean, you know, it's, it's powerful stuff. And, you know, even I sometimes, having become in, in a way inured to this, still find it quite moving. Um, and the other thing we're doing, apart from collecting more and more of these interviews, and I'm, while I'm here, I'm hoping to do some more interviews as well, because people here from, from uh, China and Southeast Asia uh, are more here than there are in London. And uh, so I'm reaching out to those to try and to interview them. And um, meanwhile, though, we're making out of these interviews um, very short films for social media. Um, so, the, uh, take the original interview, which may be a last as long as an hour or more, and then we're taking just a very f- small section of it and adding in the context and telling the story around, it, you know, like um, like about Vietnam or or whatever it may be. And I want to show you two of these very short videos. They last just over two minutes each, because that's the the time you can show on Twitter that automatically plays, which makes a huge difference to the number of hits you get. So I mean, this is aiming specifically at young people, or most intensely at young people, because that's how they get a lot of their information, and it's quite cheap to do, relatively cheap to do. So the first one is um, about Holodomor. Actually, I, I hope you won't mind, but I mean, I, you're not to blame for never being having heard of Holidamore, but how many people here have heard of Holidamore? Oh, quite a smattering, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised as many. Um, but it's something which I had not heard of a few years ago, and it's something I'm... It's now almost extraordinary to me it's, uh, that we, we, most people have never heard of it because it's something which we should all know about, and we, the fact that we didn't learn about it at school is itself an indictment of the education system. Could we have the the first film? In 1932-33, a famine took place in Ukraine, which at that time was controlled by the Soviet Union. Instead of trying to alleviate the famine, Stalin knowingly made it worse, with the result that 3.9 million people died. This terrible famine is known as Holodomor, and it is recognized as a genocide by the governments of more than 15 countries, including Canada, Australia, and the Vatican. The European Parliament has recognized it as a crime against humanity.
3: Stalin sent activist teams to into Ukrainian villages where they, uh, they confiscated uh, wheat, grain, but also potatoes, beets, really almost anything edible, so that people were really left with nothing. Uh, after that, a cordon was put around the Ukrainian public so that people would be unable to leave. Uh, Roadblocks were set up between villages and towns to make sure that peasants couldn't go into the cities to beg, although, of course, some made it there. The end result of, this, uh, of these decisions was a terrible famine. Uh, nearly four million Ukrainians died, um, but in some particular parts of the country, the, in some villages, the rates were up to, up to 50%.
1: Anne Applebaum's book, Red Famine, is a description of how Holodomor unfolded. People with swollen legs covered in sores could not sit. When such a person sat down, the skin broke. Liquid began to run down their legs. The smell was awful and they felt unbearable pain. Children developed swollen bellies and heads that seemed too heavy for their necks. One woman remembered a girl who was so emaciated that one could see how her heart was beating beneath the skin. So I mean that's uh, um, I mean I still find it quite quite powerful even though I've seen it so many times now. Um, The um, the second one is you'll be glad to hear less less grim, um, but it's it illustrates some of the economic failure of um, of uh, communist regimes and um, it is actually being lighter perhaps perhaps something to do with it. It's it's the most successful video we've done and has been retweeted and shared to such an extent that it's had a 100,000 views, more than 100,000 views now, on Facebook and Twitter. And I should mention, incidentally, that if you should wish to, to look at these in more, um, the website is uh, www.museumofcommunistterror.com, and uh, the uh, Twitter following is at Communist Terror, and the Facebook is at... Museum of Communist Terror, all one word. So um, I do encourage you to have a, have a look at this, and you can see there are about, there are a total of five or six of those now, and we're c- continually adding to the collection, which will all be on the website. The, the next one, as I say, was the most successful one, and um, it is um, an unusual story. Stefan Telesky was born in Western Ukraine, but his home was invaded first by the Soviet Union and then by Germany. At the end of the Second World War, he was again in Soviet-controlled territory, but he escaped to Britain, settled in Wales, and became a member of Parliament. Through Geoffrey Howe, the foreign minister at the time, Telesky successfully requested that his father, whom he had not been able to see for 32 years, should be permitted to visit him in Britain. His father had been transported to Siberia in the 1940s and forced to work in terrible conditions until he was too old to be useful. His father came to London in 1984 and Teleski took him to Oxford Street. Teleski's father literally could not believe what he saw. Lord Blencathra, who knew Teleski well, tells the story.
2: Stefan took him round the large Marks and Spencers at Marble Arch and his father said this shop is for party members only. No said Stefan everyone can shop here and his father didn't believe him and then next morning at the crack of dawn his father woke him up to say let us make a surprise visit to that shop the shelves will be empty they don't know I'm coming. So Stefan took him to the Marks and Spencers, and again the shelves were full of food. And he took him to the other shops in Oxford Street, and his father could not believe that every day, every shop had food and clothing for everyone.
1: He didn't believe that shops like Marks and Spencer were open to the public, because in the Soviet Union, shops had very limited produce available. Ordinary people had never even seen shops, such as those which people took for granted in Western Europe and much of the rest of the world. I love the bit in that film where the woman picks up the meat in the store, <laughs> <laughs> smells it, puts <laughs> it back. <laughs> um, anyway, it's obviously, as I say, the, the long-term project is to make a physical museum. That's a, that's a long-distance project, and I, you know, I, I, I really didn't expect at this age in my life to be embarking on something like this. But two things keep me going. One is um, the people that I've interviewed, like that woman in, in Moscow who was so nervous and shy and didn't really want to be interviewed at all, but felt she wanted the next generation to know what actually happened. Because even in Russia, memory of it is fading. Um, and, the s- and So I feel a sense of, of uh, obligation to her, having, having she, her, she having entrusted me with her memories and with the, with the b- in the belief that I would pass it on. Uh, I feel an obligation to her and a and number of other people I've interviewed. And the second thing is, is the support I've had from uh, like-minded people in England and indeed from here, from the CIS. So I am very grateful for that. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, James, um, we well, time for questions. Uh, let me ask the first one. I've spoken to many millennials, uh, in this country at least, uh, and I talked to them about upholding. And although a lot of them are ignorant of Um, you know, the things you've you've just played and spoken about, uh, they would associate socialism with not the union of Soviet socialist republics, but with the welfare states of Scandinavia, most notably Sweden and Norway. How do you respond to the charge that uh, young people aren't interested in nasty socialism, but in the good socialism of Scandinavia?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, Sweden is not Socialist I'll repeat that Sweden is not socialist. I mean those people who think Sweden is socialist either haven't found out anything about Sweden or don't know what socialism is and in fact it's worth being explicit about the difficulty of the word socialism because um, some people have got a very muddled idea and there are d- the word has been used in different contexts it wasn't invented by the Marxists it was used by it, but it, w- it goes back further than that and but Marx, you know, has really now defined socialism because of his uh, his powerful influence. And he socialism was uh, taking over the means of production by the state, and this was a transitional stage before moving on to full uh, utopian Marxism, where nobody owns property, and uh, nobody cares about property because uh, human nature has been improved. Um, and so you know we get through all these killing and terror in order to get to the socialism, which then in turn would lead to the communism, which has never actually happened. Uh, so, in Sweden, you know, is not socialist. It has lots of private, privately owned companies. It has a stock market. It has produced companies like I- IKEA and I think Skype as as well and Spotify. Um, you know, H and M. You know. Th- this is not socialism, this is private enterprise, and the tax rates are high, um, that's true tax for personal tax is quite high, and the social security, but corporate tax is something like 22%. Um, it is much lower than most other countries, certainly lo- lower than the United States. Um, this is a, or, or, yeah, it's a, yeah. Mm-hmm. so it's, it is, um, it, it is, I mean, what is people don't really understand about, about Sweden is that it's, it's people have a fixed idea of it as in the 1980s. Then it was so heavily welfareist that um, its tax burden got very, very high. The corporate tax was very high. But then it, it got in such a crisis that it had to give all that up and, um, and had to move towards much lower tax rates in order to get by because it was destroying its economy. And a uh, you know, Conservative government came in and changed a lot of the stuff and the welfare. But welfare... I mean, I've written about welfare, the book outside is about welfare states, and they, they can do damage, but they are not the same as socialism.
3: Okay.
0: How, would you respo- how would you respond to the argument that um, a lot of these young people, like previous generations, are just naive and misguided, are just like the, um, the young people in the late 60s and early 70s who flirted with uh, the North Korean regime of Ho Chi Minh, uh, and that eventually they'll get mugged by reality? Uh, I think there's a famous expression that's often attributed to Churchill. I don't think it was actually Churchill who said it, but nevertheless he gets the credit that uh, someone uh, who lacks a heart by the time they're 20 uh, isn't... uh, is not a social... No, what's, what's the actual quote? I should know this <laughs> quote. <laughs> what's the Churchill
1: quote? Uh, someone who isn't a socialist by the age of 20 is, hasn't got a heart, and somebody That's who hasn't right. isn't given it up or something by the age of 30 hasn't got a head. There you go. Uh, now, <laughs> in light of all of that, uh, should we
0: really be worried about these young people not knowing enough about socialism, even though they unashamedly embrace it?
1: Well, I think you know. it's, it's fair to say that a lot of these uh, young people will be mugged by reality, and they will actually have spirits of the world. I noticed from the polling that you did, that the highest rate of sympathy for socialism was among those who'd been to university. <laughs> <laughs> so university is a very dangerous place. And that's, a, that's around the world. That's in England and America, too, where all these left-wing professors, I mean, education is dominated by the left. And I don't, I, if somebody's got the answer to this, please please let me know, because I'd really like to know it. Um, uh, how do we can purge the universities? Purge, there's a word that they would understand. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, going back to your question, um, I would say that, yes, some of them will learn, but there, there is a trend here. I mean, that that figure for Democrats, which I quoted from the states, that's changed over time. You know, this is relatively new. It's only in the last few years that uh, uh, that a majority of Democrats have th- thought better of socialism and capitalism. <laughs> so, uh, yes, there will be some improvement with age, but there is a, there is a longer-term trend here, and I think it comes down to, to this. I think it comes down to the fact that when we had communism, we had the full... A full-blown disease. Um, and we saw it in front of us. And you know, uh, people of my age had some experience of it, or else we read in the newspapers about it, it was in the news, we knew how disastrous communism was. And so that was a kind of inoculation which lasted for, for people of, of my sort of age. But the the younger they are, the less they know about what happened under communism. And that's it's that <coughs> ignorance that is dangerous. And in a way, the idea of the museum, uh, whether it be here or in, uh, in London, is to inoculate them, you know, an innocent little vaccination to protect them from getting the full disease. Yeah,
0: on, on that note, Charles Jacobs and I, a colleague of mine here at CIS, we wrote a paper a few months ago on our research, and we looked at how a lot of young people in Britain and America, um, when they voted, say, for example, during the Thatcher and Reagan years, the percentage of young people voting for Thatcher and Reagan more or less reflected the percentage of the general vote Mm-hmm. So they were in tune with the, the electorate's outcomes. These days, younger people in Britain are far more likely to vote for Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Corbyn than they would, say, the Tory candidate. And in America, they'd be for, far more likely to vote for a Bernie Sanders or a Hillary Clinton than, uh, than they would for the Republicans. So there is something to bear in mind on that point. Other questions? Yes, sir. Gordon. Oh, I'm Just wait for the Mike uh, Gordon. Fascinating talk. One thing I'm wa- wondering about the view of of younger people is certainly they haven't heard of Muzi Tong, but they've heard of modern China, and they're told China is a communist nation, and so they see China and say, "Wow, it's so successful. We want to be like that."
1: Really? Well, I'm amazed. But uh, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't. Reg- I mean, this is going to be uh, some people who who I respect probably won't agree with this, and. Uh, but there we go. I, I don't regard China now as a communist nation. I don't regard Vietnam, which is also similarly run by uh, a, a so-called communist regime. I don't regard that as a communist country. Um, and I think that they're, they're under a misapprehension. Actually, Vietnam is, I think, the, has the only stock market in the world named after a communist leader. <laughs> it is the Ho Chi Minh stock market.
0: <laughs> Questions? Yes, uh, Mike. Just wait for the uh, the microphone, Mike.
3: Thank you. Thanks, James. I agree with you that China is not a communist country today. <coughs> Why does it keep the name Communist
1: Party? Surely that brand is is responsible for so much of the hatred that's
3: directed at China.
1: Um, yes. Well, I mean, it, it keeps the brand because otherwise. How do they justify being in, you know, those, those particular people being in power? <laughs> I mean, I, I think this is a phenomenon of communism, actually. It's part of communism is the fact that it has this legacy of uh, leaving. It's very difficult to transition from communist to democracy. I mean, ba- basically, the, if you take the history of the world, uh, growing wealth, growing middle class leads to democracy, and usually that's incompatible with, with, uh, with communism. In fact, communism directly says it. we will not respect democracy and we'll have a violent revolution to, uh, to obtain it. Um, so I, uh, I think they keep it because otherwise how else could they justify being in power? This is a continuum. They are, if the communist party is in charge, they moved away from it. They are realistic, um, realistic communists in, in the sense that they allow capitalism. Um, but they're basically a bunch of gangsters. I mean, it's an oligarchy. And um, uh, uh, just like Putin is a, is a bunch of gangsters, it's an oligarchy. I mean, they are, the amount of corruption in these countries is enormous. And in fact, studies have been done about how post-communist countries continue to have a large, because they have so much corruption that takes place during them, because the, the markets aren't working, therefore hidden markets are working. And therefore, you know, if, I, I had, a, had a Polish builder, and he told me about getting medical care in, in, in Poland. He, he was there with his partner. He lives in England now, but he, he was visiting Poland, and he went to get. He went to a hospital, and his his partner got ill, and um, and they said, "Well, we, we can treat. We can treat her in, in you know in, in ten days' time." He said, "Look, we don't understand. I'm, I'm I'm here for a very short time. I uh, we need to go in one week. Uh, please treat him now. I'm sorry, it's out of the question." And then then he went to see the doctor privately and said, "Look, I don't know how things are run in Poland these days. And in, in the old days, we you know we used to." Give you a bit of cash to, to hurry things along, and he, sa- and he said, "No, no, we don't do that. No, no absolutely not." So, um, so he he was in this room. He said, "Well, I, I'll just uh, d- j- come back to this room in a while." And uh, he left an envelope full of cash, and left the room. When he came back, it had gone. His his partner was treated. Uh, they got so used to this kind of thing that it goes on. And um, yeah, it's very um, it's very sad that they can't transition. That they. I mean, one day there will be, I suppose, some kind of revolution or evolution towards democracy. Maybe there will be a Gorbachev one day. Maybe they'll lead that way. But, I mean, that is one of the great imponderables. I don't know how or if that will happen.
0: Yes, sir. Yeah, just wait for the mic. Hi, Um.
1: thanks for your very um, informative uh, lecture. It seems to me that the
3: strategy of the left is to, shine a spotlight on the misdoings of Adolf Hitler and his regime and tell us all about that ad nauseam because they can offer the pretense that this was actually a right-wing regime. Although their official name was National Socialists, but, you
1: know, we won't explore that too much. And by keeping that spotlight on it and drowning everything else in darkness, they can sort of direct attention away from the far greater horrors that were inflicted by left-wing regimes. Um, I suppose that's an assertion, but it's an invitation for you to comment on yeah, that. Um, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think, uh, I think you're definitely onto something there. I mean, yeah. as I say, the educational system is dominated by the left. Yeah. They will go on and on. About, I think you're absolutely right. They'll go on and on about Hitler. Everybody, well, 90% uh, you know, of these people polled knew about Hitler, uh, no, and 70% didn't know about, about Mao. I mean, th- that's their education. Um, that's what they're taught and there is a, a also I mean I've discovered this in Britain I haven't had time to check whether this happens in in Australia too but um, they do cover Stalin to some extent in the in the British curriculum for you know at school not n- before university there's a section on the collectivization of farms and I looked up the revision guide we have these revision guides where people avoid doing the actual work but they do the revision guide and say so they find out a sort of brief summary which they can get through the exams and um, uh, In the revision guide, it talks about the collectivization of farms, and it has the pros and cons. (laughs) You're meant to discuss the pros and cons. I mean, this is obscene. Millions of people died in the collectivization of farms. Um, it's, It's like saying the pros and cons of the Holocaust. It is grotesque, and that's in the British educational system.
3: This, one, yeah. this is uh, Jeff Hogman. A uh, bit of a follow-up from the previous question. Uh, it, it seems remarkable that they that Hitler and Milton Friedman are put in the same category, right wing, and uh, you know we're, uh, th- th- this seems to be uh, pervasive. Is there something we can do to educate people that this is just in? <laughs> Inconceivable that uh, Milton Friedman and, uh, and uh, Adolf Hitler are in the
1: uh, uh, Well, I mean, obviously, I totally agree with you. It's obscene. It is. Re- it's repulsive when you think that people, who they would call fascists, were actually going out there fighting and dying. Australians, Brits, Americans, we were all there fighting fascists, and th- they were many of us. I mean, I wasn't obviously there, but that generation was brave. Many of them were conservative, democratic. They were the absolute opposite. They were risking their lives fighting fascism. It is obscene that they should be uh, people like that, and people like us should be called fascists. What do we do about it? I mean, you keep asking these impossible questions. I mean, what what I'm doing is trying to, you know, is doing one small thing to try and counter it, to try and tell the truth. In fact, you've given me a thought there. I mean, that I could make a little film like this, say, what is a fascist? And as you, you mentioned, the National Socialist Party. Mussolini starts from a left-wing stance. It, you know, it was um, a syndicalist and that kind of thing. It was nothing to do with free market economics. And uh, it might be worth doing a video that... Um, drew attention to what is and what is not fascism. But I mean, you know, an overall answer, please, for somebody who's got the answer, please let us know. Uh, meanwhile, I'm just doing my little bit.
3: One of the problems now is that there is no longer really a communist society in the world. Mm. So it, it's interesting to talk about what's his, what was historical but whether it has an immediate relevance to many people, I think is, is quite dubious. As you've said, the Chinese Communist Party is communist in, only in the sense that it's totalitarian, otherwise it's not. Mm. I wonder if an emphasis that shifted rather to the evils of totalitarian regimes would be more successful. Because under the same rubric, you could put Nazism, you could put Chinese Communism, Vietnamese Communism, you could put uh, uh, Bolivarian uh, Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has an immediate relevance, I think, that could be made far more palatable to a lot of people to whom the term communism now is just a faint echo from the past.
1: Well, I mean, there's some what you say I, I, um, I totally agree with. It. My original idea was that already we know plenty about uh, the, the Nazis. so. Why include them? You know, Why use up space telling, doing stuff which people already know about? Let's tell this untold story. But I'm coming around more towards your point of view, partly because force majeure. I applied for charitable status for, for this organization and was rejected on the grounds it was too political. <laughs> I, I'm sure the Museum of the Holocaust is not having the same problem. Um, but um, one way around this. Is to um, is to is to change, create a new entity, a parallel entity, which would be uh, the Institute of Totalitarianism, as you as you say, and then you could include and and it has some advantages, namely that you could put up picture of Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Pol Pot, put them all up to Ho Chi Minh, put them all up together, and put them in the same basket, and so that would. In the modern mind, where people know Hitler is even, it would put them in the same same bracket. So I'm actually moving in the direction, you say. And in a way, it's a great pity there is not a proper communist state around because that would be very helpful.
0: What (laughs) what about the modern-day example of Venezuela? Uh, Chavez was the leader there from 99 until 2013. He put in place a hardcore socialist agenda. Mm. Now, obviously, the human rights abuses were not as bad as Chinese... Communist China and Soviet Russia but nevertheless it was a socialist mm. regime mm. and look at so look at Venezuela today um, figures last year 2,800 percent inflation uh, the economy contracted 16 percent last year and uh, food, shor- shor- food shor- shortages are so evident that uh, on average last year uh, the average Venezuelan lost 11 kilograms mm. in the year. Um, and of course, the result is a lot of Venezuelans are now fleeing the socialist paradise. How come we don't know enough about this case study?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, you're absolutely right, and I should have mentioned that. But um, I think one of the, again, <laughs> we are fighting uh, the blob. Do, do you, are you familiar with the fr- f- the phrase the blob? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the inchoate mass of left wing thought, and that permeates not only education, but uh, newspapers and also. Uh, uh and also re- re- reporting the media so um you know you can if you're interested you can follow it on, on twitter and if you follow the right people you can follow it in great detail but if you're the general newspapers are, i mean in britain at least i can't speak for australia are saying occasionally they cover venezuela and occasionally they mention the word socialist but not they don't emphasize it they don't say this was a big socialist experiment of the of the 21st century, and it has completely failed, leaving people in misery and losing weight, and so on and so forth. They don't, they don't put, they don't frame it in that way.
0: And yet, Jeremy Corbyn was very close to Hugo Chavez, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and 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 uh, 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 someone I know very well, called Christian Niemitz in in England, has written a book about how um, over and over again, throughout the history of socialism. The intellectuals, people like Naam Chomsky and so forth, said this is the thing. This is the at last we have the right regime that's going to do socialism properly. And they, you know, isn't this great? And then in the end they it goes wrong and they say, it was never socialism. Never socialism. <laughs> and uh, now you know nothing was ever socialism because it's always the next one that's gonna be right. And they I mean it's just the none so blind as those who do not wish to see.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, uh, CIS is blessed to have a very distinguished board of directors, none more so than uh, our next guest who will give the vote of thanks. Uh, Michael Darling is a former chairman of CIS. He's been a long-time board member here at CIS, and it's a great privilege to uh, welcome him to give the vote of thanks. Michael Darling.
2: I think that's the best intro I've ever had in my life. It's good. (laughs) Um... I'm old enough for some of those things to resonate personally. I remember travelling as a student through Europe and going through a Yugoslavian supermarket, and there were five students on a budget of about 20 pounds each, and we were buying enough food to get through Bulgaria, which was the next stop where you wouldn't get anything. And there was one supermarket in Belgrade with hardly anything there, and it was such an impact to find five students on a budget buying food that we had the manager uh, following us around. It was. And then I went out through East Berlin um, by mistake um, because I was one of those student flights where you go to Athens, Berlin, London. I just assumed it was west. In those days, Australian passports were not valid for communist countries. But we flew into East Berlin, and it was everything that you, you can imagine was totally grey, totally depressing, whatever. We went through Checkpoint Charlie with the guns and the mirrors under the bus and the, the whole thing. It's... It was my first experience of totalitarianism and I've, I've never really forgotten it. And it, it is actually, I take the point about totalitarianism because I, I spent some time earlier this year in Iran and there again, you've had a regime that for u- utopian religious reasons has sent about a million of their young people to death, many of the kids you know, marching into minefields and all those terrible things. Um, and the martyrs all along the streets, and they're, they're still doing it. There was actually um, a very sick prison joke while you're talking about that came out. There's a, there's a huge prison outside, just outside Tehran called the Evin Prison, and that's where they put all the, particularly the high profile uh, prisoners, intellectuals, and writers, and whatever. And one of the writers was there, and he went into the prison library, and he said, uh, uh, do, you have, do you have such and such a book? And they said, no, no, we don't, we don't have the book, but we've got the writer. <laughs> <laughs> but on the, on, the, on the other side, where the memories, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's about remembering, and it's also about remembering correctly. I'd, I took my children into Russia and St. Petersburg in 1990, just after, I think, to, to see what it was like and to show them what it was like. And we had a wonderful guide, a woman who remembered all that time and was very eloquent. And my then 10-year-old was asking all the questions that you'd want to ask but don't, like how many of your family died in the siege of Leningrad and did any of them end up in the camps and what did they do to them and all those. And these terrible stories were coming out and he was asking all the questions. And then she finally said to them, what you have to remember is our history is so unpredictable. And it was a, it's a story about, The narrative, and here it's you know Mao was a good guy, and you know I saw an article at the about 10 or 15 years ago in the Sydney Morning Herald talking about the future, and they referred to the currently unfashionable Lenin, for example. Well, they had probably a lot more foresight than I did (laughs) because it probably describes him pretty accurately at the moment. But there are experiences that I remembered, and um, a few months ago I was in Latvia. And um, Stalin deported a million Latvians to Siberia and put a million Russians into Latvia. And even when the walls came down in 89, the Russians were still in the Baltic states until I think 1990 or even 1991. So what did they do? Um, The Lithuanians, Latvians, and Estonians formed a human chain, 620 kilometers long, people holding hands and sang and within a week the russians were out they'd given up um it's uh, a and it's it's recognized i didn't even know such a thing existed but there is a a thing called unesco world memory and that i think very rightly is recognized as a unesco world memory so i mean my point i think and this it's fantastic to have james reminding us these things happened um, they need to be remembered and we, we need to get um, What is called in the postmodern term the narrative right about what happened um, I'm unless um, Maybe maybe wrongly I'm less fussed about the Chinese. I think they understand I mean the president of China spent what five ten years in a collective farm during the Cultural Revolution They killed his mother his father was humiliated um, He may be um, the totalitarian but i don't think he's going to do a sort of cultural revolution type wipeout of everybody and the memory of those countries where hey they have experienced communism mm. eastern europe baltics whatever is still um really real having said that i saw an article in the australian this morning i think it was the australian which said that there'd been a similar thing to uh, the yougov poll on russian millennials and um, f- over 50% of young Russians had never heard of the Stalin purges. It's, and for the same reason. It's not in the school textbook. It's not even on the one hand this and on the, one, on the other hand that. It's just not there. Uh, so it's, it shows, I think, um, and James reminds this very eloquently, and his project, I think, is a fantastic way to do it, the importance of remembering history and remembering it correctly. So, James, thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Michael, thank you very much. And thank you too, James. And thanks all of you for being here uh, today. It's been great to have your company. Just a reminder that books are being sold, I think, just at the reception area. It's not on this subject, but it's on uh, uh, the future of welfare or the the perils of the welfare state or more more or less that line of argument. Um, James and I are on the road uh, for this month. I think uh, next week we're in Melbourne, Brisbane later uh, in October. October 23, uh, James will team up with Eugenie Joseph over there, one of our star economists. Eugenie, if you could just stand up for a moment. Eugenie and James. Yes, Eugenie's a real star economist, uh, formerly with Treasury and for the Treasurer, Scott Morrison. They'll be teaming up uh, at uh, Sydney Town Hall for one of those IQ Square debates. And the motion in front of a 1,000 people is capitalism is destroying us. So James and Eugenia are obviously on the negative side of that <laughs> argument. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if you're interested, you can get it through our website. We, we need support. We're up against a lot of lefties, so please, that'll be a please lot of fun. Come, please <laughs> We're begging <laughs> here. And uh, on a, a related note, uh, on Monday night in Melbourne, James will be uh, a guest on the ABC's Q&A program. Um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, I pray, pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing at the end of last week's episode, which featured Jennifer Buckingham over there on education. Jen was absolutely outstanding. She again was a, a lioness in the in the uh, a lion in the, in the lion's den. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, or Danielle in the lion's den. But uh, at the end of the program, Tony Jones said, "Coming up next week, we've got the leading distinguished international economist, Jeffrey Sachs." Versus the conservative columnist, James <laughs> Bartholomew. So you got the health warning, but Sarks didn't. Because Sachs of course, is a very well-known left-wing economist. But this is what we're up against. Thank you so much for being here. We hope to see you again. All the best.